right, well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys here at Grace Church, everyone in the room, everyone that's watching on live stream right now. We're so glad that you're able to be with us here together. And like uh, Pastor Kevin just mentioned a moment ago, I do just want to extend a very, very, very special welcome. If you are a guest with us here at Grace, if it's your first time uh, being with us, whether you're in the room or you're joining us on live stream, uh, we just want to extend a very special welcome to you. We're so thankful that you are our guest, and we hope that you feel welcome because you are welcome, and, uh, and we're just so glad that you're able to be with us. But I do want to tell you that if you are a guest, you are joining us on a very, very interesting weekend uh, for it to be your first weekend here at Grace. And uh, the reason for that is, uh, well, there's actually a couple reasons. The first is because right now you can probably tell that we are in a series that's called Jesus Over My Body. Uh, which, again, if you just walked in here, that might sound like one of the most bizarre things you've ever heard. Uh, you might be thinking, what is it that this church is talking about? And so uh, let, me, let me just kind of back up and let me explain to you that the series that we're in right now, Jesus Over My Body, is actually part of a much broader conversation that we've been having over the past several weeks in a, in a conversation that's been called Jesus Over All. And basically what we've been doing for the past several weeks together is we've been discussing this question. We've been saying, practically speaking, uh, what does it look like to pursue a vision where all aspects of my life are defined and directed by Jesus? That's really what we're talking about. We're saying, what does it look like, practically speaking, to live a life where Jesus is over all, all aspects, all areas of my life? And, and so we're talking very practically about those things. And so for the past three weeks, we've been talking specifically about this area of our life. We've been talking about Jesus over my body. And so a few weeks ago, if you're with us, you might remember, uh, we talked about Jesus over my health and my habits. And we said, what does it look like to bring my health within my body? What does it look like to bring my health in such a place that it is defined and directed by Jesus? Last week, if you're with us, you might remember we talked about another critical aspect of our bodies. We talked about our sexuality. And we spent a whole, uh, whole, to- a whole message last week talking about what it looks like to honor God in our sex and in our sexuality. And so that leads us to today. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to enter into another conversation about our bodies, and we're going to be talking about Jesus over my gender. This is the topic that we're going to be talking and thinking about as we think about what does it look like to be defined and directed by Jesus in all areas, and as we think about what it looks like for Jesus to be over my body, the question we're going to be thinking about today is what does it look like to allow Jesus to define and direct this part of my body, my gender? What does it look like to honor God in this way? That's what we're thinking about, and that's what we're talking about here together today. So let me, let me have you do this. If you got your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it just right from the very beginning, and let's get to Genesis chapter 1. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. So this should be very easy for you to find. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 is the first chapter in the Bible. So in the Bibles under the chairs, if you need to use one of those, page 1. All right, so just go ahead and get there. It's going to be great. Now, I do want to tell you, uh, before we get to Genesis, it's going to take a couple of minutes before we actually get to Genesis chapter 1. So you might just want to open the Bible and just hold it there in your lap. Uh, We'll get there here in a second. Uh, But first, I think it's important that we make a a couple of uh, uh, kind of opening comments before we just jump right into this. So without a question, I, I, I don't need to convince you and I'm sure you can appreciate this, this is a very involved topic, a very, very involved topic. And uh, without a doubt, this is one of those conversations that you can approach from several different angles. There's a lot of different ways you can approach this, and I was actually really wrestling with that. So I was preparing for this. I was thinking, what is the best way to really approach and address the topic of Jesus over my gender? And so I thought what I would, what I would let you know is I, I, I want to kind of invite you, I, the way that I want to approach this today, is I want to invite you into a little bit of a conversational journey with me. Okay, so I want to invite you into a conversational journey. And so what I want to give you in this conversational journey, rather than giving you like three points about gender, which is included in this message, but what I would rather give you is I want to give you five mile markers in this conversation. Okay, so here's how I'd like to approach today's conversation. I want to give you five mile markers. So here's the five things that I want to touch on and I want to talk about in this conversation. So first off, I want to talk about ripple effects. Okay, number two, I want to talk about tectonic shifts. And then number three, I want to talk about the Bible and gender. That's where Genesis is going to come in. Then we want to talk about the way forward And then we're going to end in the best place ever. We're going to end with the love of Jesus. Okay, so those are the five mile markers, just so you can kind of kind of orient yourself to the conversation that we're in. Here's the five things we're going to talk about. So let's just start at the very top, and let's start with mile marker number one. Let's talk about ripple effects. 
So again, I don't need to convince you and I don't need to prove to you that gender conversations and gender debates are a very big part of the world that we live in right now. Um, it really seems like everywhere we look, whether it is in the news or schools, in social media, in media, in politics, in many different things, it seems like gender conversations and gender debates are happening in every sphere of life. And, um, and it's showing up in a lot of different places. Everything from, I'm sure if you see on the news, the, the, the Dylan Mulvaney controversy, uh, to in our own uh, stores around, uh, around uh, kind of uh, our, our communities, places like Target, which is now selling tuck-friendly uh, uh, swimsuits, to things like Facebook, like social media, where if you, if you go on, say, on Facebook right now, you can choose from different, uh, 58 different gender categories of who you identify as, uh, to things like in some of the education systems in our country today, uh, where they are uh, basically teaching and training students to select their own pronouns, and that they're uh, asked to respect each other's pronouns and call each other by different pronouns. And like I'm saying, this, this shows up in many different areas. I could go on, and the list can go on. We could talk about, for many of you in your workplace, the HR conversations that are happening. Or we could talk about sports and what's happening in the sports world uh, right now. And all I'm saying is gender conversations and gender debates are happening in basically all spheres that we see around us in life. And, and I want to be careful, by, by the way, at this point, I want to be careful to make sure that, this, that what we're talking about today is not just an issue that's out there. I want to be very careful that we're not doing that, that this is just an issue and a topic of something that's happening out there. Because I know that when we talk about this topic of even gender amongst a crowd like this, I know that what we're talking about for many of you is not just an ideological or philosophical conversation, but for some of you, this is deeply personal and hits home in some deeply personal and emotional ways. And so, for example, I know that there are some of you who are even within our congregation, I know this, that there's some who are in our own congregation who are parents or are grandparents, and you are trying to navigate through uh, 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 interactions with a child or a grandchild where they're in a place where they are questioning their own gender. Maybe they're asking you to refer to them by a different name or a different set of pronouns. And you are genuinely trying to navigate what does it look like to love and to lead and to care for this person. Uh, or maybe like me, maybe there's many of you who are in this room who have friends, who have coworkers, who have family members who are part of the LGBTQ community and we are genuinely, genuinely trying to figure out what does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? And specifically with a person who would look at the church and say that the religious community, they feel especially hurt by. So what does it look like to love and to navigate through conversations there? Or maybe for some, even for some of us who are here today, maybe you're a person who yourself, this is, this is a deeply personal conversation because you have felt a lifelong alienation in your own body. And maybe you're a person who would say that you yourself have questioned your own gender identity, and you're a person who would say that you never quite fit the stereotypes that are celebrated by culture around us as it relates to gender, and you feel like this is not a safe place for you to vocalize those feelings and those emotions that you have within you. And so for some of you, this is deeply personal on that level. And so all I'm saying, and this is all I'm saying, is that there are all these conversations and all these considerations around gender there's a lot of things we could say about them, and all of these are very important conversations. But here's what I believe, and here's what I'm hoping we're going to see today, is we could talk about each one of those issues, we could talk about each one of those conversations, but I believe that many of the conversations that are happening in society today and the debates about gender are actually just ripple effects. They're ripple effects. They're a surface-level ripple effect that's happening because of a tectonic shift that is happening under the surface. And that brings me to the second mile marker. I wanna to talk to you about some tectonic shifts. So, so here's, here's what I'm hoping that, sh that you, you and I are gonna to come to see, that the conversations that we're having in society about gender, that if you actually dig down to the base of it, what you're gonna find is that the foundation of these conversations and debate is actually not about gender. It's actually more foundationally about anthropology. It's about anthropology. Now, stick with me for a minute. You guys remember what anthropology is? Anthropology is the study of humanity, right? It's the study of what makes a human being a human being, what makes a person a person. And what, I, what I'm hoping you're going to see is there has been a tectonic shift that has taken place that, that is underneath all of these conversations that we're having. 
So, so let me see if I, can, if I can show it to you this way. So what I want to give to you right now is I actually am going to show you a number of statements, comments, and definitions that, are, that have been put out there that best represent what I believe is kind of the most, the most secular view of gender that's among us. So I want to give you a bunch of different comments and quotes. These come from all kinds of different sources, but I think they best represent the, uh, the, uh, the, most, the most secular view of gender that we see among us. Let me give you a bunch of them. So here's one. So this actually comes from something called the Yogyakarta Principles. So just to help you understand what that is, uh, there's a city in Indonesia called Yogyakarta, and there was a group of people who came together to discuss issues of human rights. And they released, they released a set of principles to help us kind of navigate through human rights. And here's what they said in the, Yoga, the Yogyakarta Principles. They said, gender identity refers to each person's deeply felt internal and individual experience of gender, which may or may not correspond with the sex assigned to birth. Okay, so that's one. Keep that in your mind. I want you to see, I want you to see if, the, if you can identify an underlying theme in all of these statements. Okay, so that's one. Here's another one. This comes from GLAD, which is the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. They say transgender is a term used to describe people whose gender identity differs from the sex the doctor marked on their birth certificate. Okay, let me give you another one. This one comes from Transgender Kids, which is a documentary. It says that the heart of the debate about transgender children is the idea that your brain can be at war with your body. Let me give you another one. All right, this is from something called the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. They say gender identity refers to a person's internal sense of being male, female, or a combination of these, and it may change over the course of their lifetime. Let me give you another one. This comes from a BBC documentary. It says it doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in, it's what you feel that defines you. Or how about this one? This is Jessica Savano, who's a male-to-female actress, said, I know I'm not my body. I am a spiritual being. And then one last one. This comes from Chaz Bono. Gender is between your ears and is not between your legs. Okay, that is a whole bunch of different statements that I gave you. But what, what I'm asking is, do you notice that there is a consistent underlying theme in each and every single one of these about what it means to be a human being, about what it means to be a person. Let me show it to you this way. What what all of these are saying is that there is a separation between being what what, what is your deeply felt internal sense. There's a difference between your deeply felt internal sense and the sex that's assigned to you at birth. There's a separation between your gender identity and the sex that's marked on your birth certificate. There's a distinction between what you feel and the meat skeleton that you were born in. There's a separation between your internal sense of male and female and the biological body that you were born with. There's a difference between your spiritual being and your body, and there's a separation between what's in your ears and what is between your your legs. So what I'm trying to show you is the underlying assumption is that there are two separate and distinct parts of every single one of us. If I could put it to you as simply as I could, here's the basic idea. Here is the tectonic shift. The tectonic shift is that there's two parts of a person. There's your person, your person, who is your authentic self, who you feel that you really are, your spiritual being, the authentic you. And then there's your body, which is your biological organism. It's a bio- it's your meat skeleton, is what someone said. And so, and what all of it is saying is there is a big separation between these two things, between these two things. And here's what I want you guys to understand, that this view of personhood, this view of personhood is a tectonic shift that has a ton of ripple effects in a lot of different things that we see around us. And so, for example, this view of personhood, they actually call this personhood theory, this view of personhood affects issues like abortion, it affects issues like capital punishment, euthanasia, sexuality, and of course, things like gender. Because think about it, think about it for a minute. If the question is, if the question is this, what is a fetus? Is a fetus a person, someone who is an authentic person, a self who, who has moral and legal binding attached to them, or is a fetus just a biological organism? Is it just a biological machine? What about a person, what about a human being who's in a catatonic state in the hospital? Is that person still a person, or at this point, are they just a body, 
just a biological organism. And so you can see how this has ripple effects in a lot of different conversations. And what I want you to understand is that this view of personhood is what undergirds, it's what undergirds the transgender movement. This is what's behind the whole movement. The basic idea is this, that it is possible for your true self to be trapped in the wrong body. It's possible you, for you, for your authentic self to be a, a woman who is trapped in a man's body. And the thinking goes like this. And if your biology is different than who you believe that you are, then some activists would say it this way, then biology is bigotry. And so what you need to do is you need to change your body so that it can match your true self. All right, now, if that, if that still sounds a little bit too confusing, let me see if I can put it in the most simple way that I know how to. In fact, someone's already done this for us. Maybe you guys have seen this before. Uh, there's actually a, uh, a diagram, this cartoon that's been created uh, by a guy named Sam Killerman. This is called the genderbred person. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this before, but the genderbred person and something else called the gender unicorn, it's another cartoon that's like this, is sometimes used as a cartoon to help explain to children uh, that, our, that our gender is, is something that is distinct from our bodies. And so basically, in the genderbred person, I want you to notice here that what they're going to do is they're actually going to say that gender and sexuality is composed of four separate factors, all which can contradict each other. And so if you notice on this diagram, what they're going to say is there is your biological sex. Your biological sex, of course, will be the gender, to use their language, the, the gender that's assigned to you at birth. But then you have your gender identity, which is, which is your true and authentic self, who you really feel that you are. Then you have your gender expression, which is how you express yourself in the world around you, how you dress and how you act. And then you have your orientation, which is whom you are attracted to. And what's interesting is, if you look at this, it's very clear that this is designed to appeal to young children. It's oftentimes used to educate young children about the separation of body and the person. And basically what it does is it says that gender is essentially like a set of EQ sliders on a mixing board. And you can have any combination of these four features, which is how Facebook comes up with 58 different uh, uh, kind of uh, different classifications for gender. So here's the question that maybe you're asking, and it's definitely the question that I found myself asking, is if there's been this massive tectonic shift in how we understand a person, how did we get here? How did we get to this place? And it's interesting, if you dig into it, you're going to find out that it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight. It took a, a, a lot of different things had to happen to get to this place where we are today. And I don't have time to get into all of that, but I actually just want to uh, recommend to you, if you want to dig deeper into the kind of what paved the way to get us to a place where we're at today, there's actually two phenomenal books that I would highly recommend to you. Both of these actually give a, uh, a little bit of a cultural analysis, and they help us explain how we sort of move to this place. One is called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Um, I, I'll just tell you, I cannot, I cannot recommend this book more highly. It is a phenomenal read about the theology of the body. And the second one is a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I will just tell you, this book by Carl Truman is phenomenal. It's very dense, but it's, it's an incredibly helpful read. It's a cultural analysis of what, what has transpired to lead us to a place of personhood that we have today. And what Carl Truman's going to say, not to get too deep into the weeds, but what Carl Truman's going to say is he's going to say that there have to be four factors that are present in a society to make transgenderism coherent, Okay. And those four things are going to be this. He says, you have to have a society that elevates the psychological over the physical, elevates the psychological over the physical in determining identity. And you have to have a society that downplays external authority. So things like biology. You have to have a culture that's fueled by powerful individualism. You decide who you're going to be. And then you have to possess the technological ability to manipulate biological realities. In other words, you have to have things like gender reassignment surgery, hormone blockers. You have to have technology for those things, all of those things which are present in our society today. Okay, so that's a lot. So mile marker number three, what does the Bible say about gender? Does scripture speak to these things? And if so, what does the Bible have to say about personhood and about gender. Well, you guys, I think um, you, you probably will see this here in a minute, that what the Bible is going to say about personhood 
is, is very, very, very different. It gives us a very different understanding of personhood that informs how we understand things like gender. It's interesting, when you go to the Bible, you're going to find that every time biblical authors talk about issues of gender and sexuality and personhood, biblical authors, including Jesus Christ, are always going to go back to one place. And the place that they're going to go back is to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3. They always do that. And why do they do that? Because it's our origin story. It's the origin story of where we came from. And so whenever Jesus and whenever the biblical authors are asked questions about marriage, about men and women, about how men and women interact with each other, about gender-related topics, they're always going to take us back to Genesis. And so keeping with the biblical authors, that's what I want to do. I want to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and show us what the Bible says about personhood and about gender. And so what I want to give you, just real quick, is I actually just want to give you four key observations about personhood and gender according to Genesis. Here's the first one. The first one is this. You're going to find when you go to Genesis that gender identity is created and is determined by God. So what is the starting place? Well, the Bible is going to say the starting place is this, that our gender identity, your gender identity, my gender identity is something that is created and is something that is determined by God. That's the starting place. So let me just show you Genesis chapter one, right there in your Bibles. Verse 27 says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right, now this is one very quick verse, but I want you to notice something just when, when you're observing this verse. Do you notice that in this one single verse, three times we are told that God is the creator? Three times. Genesis chapter one is gonna introduce us to God. And what is the first thing that Genesis tells us about God? Here's what it's gonna tell us, that God is the creator. So before we're ever told that God is holy, before we're ever told that God is sovereign, before we're ever told that God is just, we are told first that he is creator. Now, why is that important? Here's why that's important. Because not only does that tell us something about God, but that also reveals something to us about us. It helps us orient ourselves to the cosmic story, to the great story, which is what? That you and I are created, that we are created beings. And I think what that means is it means that for us to find purpose means that we have to look to the creator. And I also want you to notice something interesting. I want you to notice the Bible is going to say that God is the creator, but it's also going to say that he created male and female which means this. It means that gender, gender is not a cultural construct. It's not culturally determined, nor is gender a self-determined trait. Gender is a created reality. And so what does that mean? Well, simply it means this. We, we said this last week about sexuality. The one who designed it gets to define it. And if we, if we want to understand what the purpose of gender is and how, how we should approach it, we should go to the creator, the one who made it. Which leads us to the second point then. So the second point is this, is that gender identity, according to Genesis, is actually an essential part of our personhood. Your gender identity, my gender identity, is actually a critical part, it's a central part to our personhood. Once you look again at Genesis 127, it's going to tell us twice in this verse God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Remember, we were talking about personhood. What does it mean to be a person? And the big question that is happening right now in personhood theory is what is it that makes a person valuable? What is it that makes a person have dignity? What is it that gives a person legal and moral rights within a society? And those are the big conversations that people are having right now about personhood. What the Bible is going to tell us is it's going to tell us that personhood, that what makes us valuable, that what gives us dignity, is not what society says about us, and it's not even what our parents determine about us, whether they want to keep us or they don't want to keep us. The Bible is going to say what really gives us dignity, what gives us value, is right here, that we are all created in the image of God. Genesis is going to tell us that humanity is distinct from all other aspects of creation in this. We are the only ones who bear the image of God. Now, some of you might be thinking, what does that even mean to bear the image of God? And I just want to tell you, that is a whole other sermon for a whole other day. That is a massive topic. But it at least means this. It at least means this. It means that we have a unique dignity and we have a unique value that comes because we are made in God's image. 
And so what that means is that every single human being who is knit together in their mother's womb is fearfully and is wonderfully made and has dignity and value, not because of what society says and not because of what their parents say and not because, but because of what God says. You are made in my image. You are, and I want you to know something else. Do you notice the Bible's gonna say that we are made in God's image and that it takes both genders, according to God, to fulfill his image? It takes the binary. It takes both men and women, male and female, for us to fulfill the image of God, which means what? It means this. It means the Bible's gonna tell us right from the very beginning that one gender is not superior to the other and that both genders are equal in that they are made in the image of God. But it's also going to tell us that each gender is distinctly different from one another, even though they're equal in value. It takes both. So what does that mean? It means that our gender is intentional and it's an important part of our personhood, of being people who are made in the image of God, which actually leads to the third thing that you're gonna see in Genesis, and that's this. The gender identity is embodied. Your gender identity, my gender identity, the Genesis is gonna tell us, is embodied. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Very practically, it means that your body and that my body, my physical body, reveals my gender. That there's actually something within my physical body itself that reveals what's true about my gender. Contrary to the idea that my body and my person are detached, the Bible's gonna say that that's not true. The Bible's going to say that my personhood is very much tied to my biology. Genesis is gonna to reveal to us that our gender is something that is physically grounded. It's not something that's just psychologically determined. It's something that's grounded physically. Actually, I want you to notice what it's gonna say in Genesis 2. We are actually told how the first humans were made. And look, look what the Bible's gonna say. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And then later, it tells us about the woman. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. Now, I want you to notice something here. When God creates the first humans, he doesn't create two non-physical spirits called Adam and Eve, and then look for bodies to put them in. He doesn't do that. He creates them in their physical body in a material world. God could have made us like the angels. He could have made us spirits without bodies, but he didn't. He made us in our physical bodies in a physical world. I love the way one author, her name is Abigail Favalli, said it. And she wrote a book called The Genesis of Gender. She said this, Genesis emphasizes another vital principle. The body reveals the person. Our bodies are the visible reality through which we manifest our hidden inner life. Each person's existence is entirely unrepeatable and our unique personhood can only be made known to others through the frame of our embodiment. She goes on, this is displayed in the man's immediate recognition of the woman. They have not yet spoken. She has not verbally introduced herself. Her body speaks the truth about her identity. And this truth is immediately recognized by the man who is struck with joy and wonder at the revelation of a person with whom he can at last have true communion. You guys see what she's saying? What she's saying is this, when, when the woman comes to Adam and he's introduced and, she, and, and, and they, they're introduced for the first time, how does Adam know that she's a woman? And here's the answer, because he sees her. He sees her body. She doesn't introduce herself. She's not like, hello, my name is Eve and these are my pronouns. He sees her and he's like, you're a woman, you're a woman. And, and all I'm saying is there is something in our biology that reveals something about our gender Identity. Now, if that sounds too abstract, let me see if I can illustrate this in a really simple but also kind of a really silly way. All right, so forgive the silly illustration, but I think this might be helpful. So um, you guys probably have all heard the classic art debate that's out there about what is a fruit and what is a vegetable. Um, it's so crazy to me. My wife and I were talking about this probably like a month ago or something, and I, I was telling her, I'm like, you know what's crazy? I still don't know exactly what the, what the difference between a fruit and a vegetable is. I, you know, my, my whole life is just so confusing. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I decided I was gonna try to figure it out. And so I dug into it. I probably spent more time than I care to admit trying to figure this out. But do you guys know why this is such a complicated question? What is a fruit and vegetable? Because it really depends on who you ask. 
There's a lot of different answers out there. So for example, if you were to ask just an average person, what is a fruit or a vegetable? Chances are good they might give you a stereotypical definition, right? There are stereotypes in our culture about fruits and vegetables. So a person might say, well, fruit is juicy and sweet, you know, like an apple. And, uh, and a vegetable is fibrous and savory, like a carrot would be or something like that. And, and for the most part, I mean, those stereotypes are kind of true for sure, but those are stereotypes. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with it is that those are somewhat objective. And here's the other problem with it. And again, you guys, I'm sorry. This is, I, I spent more time than I care to admit on this, is that those stereotypes actually change depending on the culture that you're in. So do you guys know that China has really different stereotypes around fruits and vegetables? I just thought that was really interesting to me. So you could ask one person, they give you a stereotypical definition. You could ask another person, and they might give you a legal definition, a definition that's based on what's been legally determined through legis legislated laws within society. This is crazy. Did you guys know that in 1893, the conversation about whether a tomato should be a fruit or vegetable got so heated, it went to the Supreme Court? <laughs> I am not kidding you. And the Supreme Court voted unanimously that a tomato is a vegetable. That is a law. A tomato is a vegetable. That's a law. It's taxed as a vegetable, all right? Now, here's what's interesting. Now, but here's the problem with that. The problem is laws can change. The problem is governments change. Depends on where you go. Now, there's another place you can go. You could ask a botanist. And a botanist is going to give you a biological definition, which is based on something that is objectively true about the object itself. And by the way, just to give you the botanist definition, in case you're like, what is the answer? Here it is. Here's the botanist definition. They're going to tell us this. If I can get my PowerPoint clicker to work. They're going to tell us this. If I can get my PowerPoint clicker to work. They're going to tell us this. Thank you. <laughs> fruit, fruit is the edible, mature, seed-bearing structure that develops from the ovary of a flowering plant. So there you go. Does it come from the ovary of a plant? Does it, does it have seeds? It's a fruit. Okay. Vegetables are the edible root, tuber, that was a new word for me, leaf, stem, or bulb of a plant. That's what it is. That's the difference. So under this definition, fruits would be things like avocados are fruits, corn is fruit, cucumbers are fruit, pumpkins are fruit, my favorite fruit, peppers are fruit, and zucchini is fruit. Right? So, so all that. Okay, so what's the point? Like, what's the point? I'm not even sure anymore. I don't really know. I can't remember. I can't remember. No, I know. I know what it is. I know what it is. Here's the point. Within creation itself, there is objective embodied truth. That's the point I'm trying to make. I love the way that uh, Nancy Piercy says it in her book, Love Thy Body. She said, we can read signs of God's existence and purposes in creation. It is evident that living things are structured for purpose. Eyes are for seeing. Ears are for hearing. Fish, uh, fins are for swimming. And wings are for flying. Each part of an organ is exquisitely adapted to the others and all interact in a coordinate, goal-directed fashion to achieve the purpose of the whole. This kind of integrated structure is the hallmark of design. There, there's something in our created bodies themselves that proclaim objective truth about our gender. In a very famous TED Talk, uh, a cardiologist by the name of Paula Johnson said this, every single cell has a sex. And what that means is that men and women are different. We're different all the way down to the cellular level and molecular level. It means that we're different across all of our organs, from our brains to our hearts and to our lungs and to our joints, biologically, hormonally, chromosomally, reproductively, and anatomically, males and females are counterparts to one another. And so contrary to the idea that gender is a spectrum, it's a spectrum, Scripture is going to say, no, gender is a binary, male and female. And God has made us counterparts to one another. And by the way, Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 19 affirms the binary. In the beginning, God created them. Now, Jesus even recognizes that because of sin and brokenness in the world, that sometimes our bodies are broken. And yet, even within that, Jesus still affirms the goodness of creation, the binary of male and female, which leads to the, this fourth thing. Self-alienation is the result of a broken world. Self-alienation is a result of human rebellion that started back in the beginning. It's interesting, when you look at the scriptures, Genesis 1 is going to say this. God creates male and female. He creates human beings. And the Bible is going to say, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. It was very good. What God originally made is very good. Our gender is not something to loathe. It's something that God says is very good. 
uh, uh, our bodies are not something that God degrades. God doesn't look at the bodies that he created and say, those are just a bunch of meat skeletons. It's not what he says. He says they are very good. They are very good. What's fascinating is Genesis chapter two is gonna end by saying this. It's gonna say Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. What you're gonna see is that men and women are accepting of their bodies. But then Genesis chapter three happens. In Genesis chapter three, we see human rebellion. And as a result of human rebellion, sin enters in the world and brokenness enters in the world. And the Bible's gonna say this, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. See, all of a sudden you're gonna see that the result of brokenness and rebellion is that we feel alienation within ourselves. We now feel a sense of conflict and unease in our own skin. We no longer feel comfortable in our own skin. We feel the need to cover ourselves or to change ourselves or to modify ourselves in some way to help mask this internal alienation that we feel within ourselves. And you guys, this, I believe, what we see persists to this day. We all feel a, self, a sense of self-alienation that happens within us. And I think it shows up in a lot of different ways. And can I just tell you, I think that one of the ways that we see this happen is in gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria, when a person can say, I feel like a man who's trapped in a woman's body. Or I feel like a woman who is trapped in a man's body. Can I just say, can I just say this? I believe that biblical Christianity actually has something incredible to offer the transgender community. I think it does. Because I think what biblical Christianity is saying in Genesis chapter three is it helps us make sense of the internal conflict that we feel within us. The Bible doesn't say that that conflict is not real. The Bible says that that conflict is very real. But it also helps us see that it was not created to be that way from the beginning. And of course, that leads me to the next mile marker, which is the way forward. So what do you do with all this? And what's the path forward? What's the pathway forward? And of course, I would say there's at, least, there's at least two ways you could go here. I think that there's two very different paths a person can take in light of this conversation. Now, the first path I would call the cultural response. I believe this is what we would hear today from, I guess, I guess you just say probably what, what, what the, the secular cultural response is mostly saying would be this. If your mind and your body feel out of alignment, you should listen to your mind and you should change your body. That's what we're being told right now. If your mind, if your true and authentic self feels a certain way, then instead of being, instead of, of being instructed to change your mind to come in, into alignment with your body, what we, we are being instructed to do is to change your body to come into alignment with your mind, with who you believe yourself to be. And so this is why gender reconstruction, uh, gender uh, realignment, reconstruction surgeries, things like hormone blockers, things like the rest of uh, those around me need to affirm my pronouns and accept me for who I really am. All of those things, that would be right now the cultural response. But you guys, I believe, I believe that there's increasing evidence that this path is actually leading to some very devastating places. I just wanna show you a few, a few statistics. These come from the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Eight to 13% of people who have transitioned have detransitioned. Those who successfully transitioned face suicide rates that are 19 times greater than the general population. Trans kids are prescribed more antipsychotic drugs after beginning gender transition than before. And you guys, 41% of transgender people will attempt suicide. And you guys, I'm just saying, that should move you. That should concern you. Because these are, these are human beings who are created in God's image. And it should, it should cause us to say, Maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a different path. And I believe there is a, another path. I believe there is a better way. And I believe it's the gospel. I believe it's Jesus. What is the gospel response? Well, you guys, the culture is going to say, if your mind and your body feel out of alignment, then you should listen to your mind and you should change your body. 
the Bible's gonna offer us a very different path forward. And I wanna show you a passage of the scripture and I think, I think you're gonna see the difference. I think you're gonna see it. So keep an eye out for it. This is Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, love that. Think about his love for you. Think about how he died for you. Think about the forgiveness he offers you. In view of all of that, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His, look at this, his good, his good, pleasing and perfect will. In other words, the culture is gonna say, if your mind and your body feel out of alignment, listen to your mind and change your body. The gospel is gonna say, if your mind and your body feel out of alignment, offer your body to God's will, to God's way, and allow him to transform and renew your mind. Let him renew your mind. You guys, I think, honestly, we need to think very carefully about how much we should trust our own perception of ourselves. The transgender movement assumes that we have full and reliable access to who we truly are, to ourselves. But I think it's reasonable for us to say that if Genesis 3 is gonna tell us that there's brokenness in our bodies because of sin, I think it's fair for us to assume that we're also going to experience that same kind of alienation in our hearts and our minds. And so the scripture is gonna say, trust God, trust him, trust his definition and offer your body as a living sacrifice and allow your mind to be transformed. Here, here's the truth. The truth is, you guys, all of us, every single one of us, misidentify ourselves. We all do. Whether it's in our gender or whether it's in our own sense of self-righteousness, we all misidentify ourselves. And we have to come to Jesus and submit our will to his will and submit our bodies to him to allow us to transform him. I want you to think about it this way. I want you to imagine that an anorexic person, a person who really struggles with anorexia, goes to the doctor and says to that doctor, I very much believe that I am a grossly overweight person. If that doctor is a loving doctor and he really cares for that person, that doctor is not gonna say, well, because you believe that's true about yourself, let's get you diet pills and let's get you liposuction. If that doctor is really loving to that person, truly loving to them, that doctor is gonna say, actually, let's talk about your mind and let's bring your mind into alignment with its reality and what's true about your body. I think it's really interesting, you guys. Ryan Anderson, he's a PhD who interacts with a lot of these conversations. He said, the best studies of gender dysphoria show that between 80 and 95% of children who express a discordant gender identity will come to identify with their biological sex if natural development is allowed to proceed. Sometimes I wonder, can we really trust our true perception of who we think we are and, and, and bringing us back into a place where we trust God with who he says that we are? I think it's interesting in the United Kingdom, I don't know if you guys saw this, they actually just shut down the world's largest pediatric gender clinic. They just shut it down. And the reason they shut it down is because of the, uh, the incredible amount of lawsuits that were coming towards them. And so what was happening was, was children, or now adults who were children 10 years ago, are coming to them and they're saying, we came to you and we expressed that we were experiencing gender dysphoria and we were counseled for gender reassignment surgeries and hormone blockers. And now we're coming back and we're saying that you counseled us to make permanent changes to our bodies based on temporary feelings that now have ir irreversible effects to it. And so the scripture is gonna offer us a different way. It's gonna say to trust God and to move forward in those things, which leads me to the last thing. And that is the love of Jesus. Oh, the love of Jesus. I think those of us who follow Christ, and by the way, let me just say this. I know that not everyone here today is a follower of Jesus. Some of you are still investigating your, your walk with Christ and spirituality. And that's what you know. It's a, we count it, we say this all the time. We count it a privilege that you would let us be part of your investigation. But for those of us who follow Jesus, I think we have to ask ourselves an important question in light of all of this. I think we have to ask ourselves this. How did the one who we say that we follow, how did he respond to people, especially people who are marginalized and people who are most rejected specifically by the religious community? How did Jesus interact with those people? And I think the answer is very, very clear when you look at scripture, and I think it's pretty unanimous. Jesus moved towards people, not away from them. He moved towards them, and he did it with grace, and he did it with truth. You guys, you see this a million times. You see this with Zacchaeus. 
Zacchaeus, who was a hated tax collector. No one would even associate with Zacchaeus. And Jesus, Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house immediately. He moves towards him. What do you see with the woman at the well? The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, who the religious people wouldn't even associate with. They wouldn't even go near her. Jesus went out of his way to find her. He speaks to her full of grace and full of truth. What about the woman who's caught in adultery, who the religious community is so outraged with that they're prepared to stone her to death? Jesus looks at her and he says, I don't judge you. And he says, now go and sin no more. He is full of grace and he is full of truth and full of both of these things. And you guys, I believe that's instructive for us. There's something instructive for us in this. And I believe that a big part of this is that we should move towards people, not away, full of grace and full of truth like Jesus. You guys are saying, well, how do you do that? Well, I think here's one. I think here's a good starting place. This is just a great starting place. I think we should listen really well. I think we should listen very well. Uh, Proverbs 18, I believe, has something really good to say to us here. To answer before listening, that's folly and that's shame. To, to look at a person and not know them, to not know their story, to know nothing about them except for one thing about them, and then to just say, I already know the answer, that's folly and that's shame. Because it's important that we, and we all know this, people are not issues. People are people. And so, so our job, our goal, for those of us who follow Christ, is not to win a cultural battle. That's not our goal. And our goal, our goal is not simply to make, our, make a point. Our goal is to, is to love real people who are made in the image of God. Because I think we need to ask ourselves this question. I think our hearts need to be broken, and we need to ask ourselves this question. This conversation that we had today, I'm sure that it probably elicits a whole lot of emotions in a whole lot of us. For some of you at different points, maybe you felt saddened, maybe you felt angry, maybe for some of you felt upset, maybe even at some points in the conversation you felt outraged. And I think the question that we have to ask is this. I think it is upsetting, and, it should, it, and there's parts of it that are upsetting, but which part upsets you the most? Are you the most upset about issues that you see around you that are causing you to grow in your anger and disgust towards people? Or are you more upset that these are people who are made in the image of God that causes you to grow in your concern and your compassion and move towards them. I think it's really important that we consider those things. You guys, I just wanna say this too. I think that one of the ways that we help understand, I think is that we dig deeper into these topics. So I wanna point you once again, we talked about this last week, on July 9th, Sunday, July 9th, the evening, uh, we're gonna have a special event called Rethinking Sexuality. Dr. Julie Slattery is gonna be with us. We're gonna talk about issues of sexuality and gender. And then we're gonna open it up for a time of Q&A where myself and Dr. Slattery are gonna answer any question that you guys have about sexuality and gender. And I shouldn't say answer, we're gonna to respond to every question that you have about those things. There's no holds bar on what you wanna ask. Uh, I will just tell you that event is $5 per person. You can register online. That's just to cover the cost. We're not gaining any profit off of that. But that's just to cover cost. And I wanna encourage you, if you're thinking about coming to this, sign up immediately because it's filling up fast. And so we only have enough, enough room for that. But I think it's important for us to dig deeper into this conversation in settings like this. So I think, I think we need to listen well. I think we need to offer hospitality. I think those of us who follow Jesus need to offer hospitality. You know, unfortunately, I think the message that is most received by the transgender community from the church is essentially this. You're not welcome here. I think that the message that's most received by a person who's wrestling with their gender identity, the person who maybe has had gender reassignment surgery, the message that they're hearing from the church is that you're not welcome here. And can I just tell you guys, that breaks my heart. That absolutely breaks my heart. Because if the church is not for struggling people, who is it for? Who is it for? It's... The church, listen, every single one of us needs to be transformed in our hearts and our minds. And only Jesus is the one that we look to to transform us. So let me just say this. If you're a person who's wrestling with your gender identity, if you're a person who has had gender reassignment surgery and you find yourself in a place like this, let me be the first one to tell you, you are welcome here. You are welcome. We won't mock you. We won't hate you. We will not do those things.
but we will point you to Jesus. We'll point you to his word and what he said is true. We'll point you to his ways and we'll point you to his grace because he's the one who's full of grace and truth, which leads me to the last thing. And with this, we'll invite the band to come up. You guys, we should listen well. We should offer hospitality and we should point to Jesus. We should point to Christ because he's the one who can change us because he's the one who can transform us because he is the one who can move us from the inside out. Because all of us are broken people who are coming to one person who can ultimately transform us, the person of Jesus Christ. Because guys, here's what we believe. We believe, we actually believe this, that there is a body that will finally and fully give us freedom. We believe that that's true. There is a body that will finally and fully give us freedom. But it's not our own. It's not our own. Colossians says this, Colossians chapter one, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through his death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Because the only hope that we have in the brokenness of our body is his body, which was broken for us, to offer us forgiveness, to offer us grace, that we might be transformed in the renewing of our mind when we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we just want to say thank you that you, well, you haven't left us in the dark about stuff like this. And God, this is a conversation that, um, man, it's just, it, it's, it's acutely sensitive in the moment that we find ourselves in right now. So God, I pray, I pray just first off that you would help those of us who follow you to be like you. Help us to be full, 100% of grace and truth, not compromising on either, not forsaking one for the other, but holding firmly onto both. And Jesus, we know the only way that we can respond that way is to be like you. And so I pray that we'd spend more time with you, that we'd learn from you. Jesus, I do wanna pray for any person in this room right now who's struggling internally, maybe struggling with their own gender identity, maybe even is in a spot where they feel, feel like they cannot vocalize the, the, the struggle that's happening within them because of the fear of judgment of saying those things out loud in a community of like this. Father, I pray that you, would, that you would be with that person. Help them to see the hope that is found in you, Christ. I also pray that you would help that person see the truth that's found in you, Christ, that they would come to you, that they would even maybe be able to, to, um, to speak about the internal feelings that they're having with those who are around them. Jesus, we look to you to transform us in our hearts and our minds. You're the only one who can change us. Father, you're the only one who can truly transform our minds and our hearts. And so we look to you, Jesus, and as we have a chance right now to worship and sing, I pray that we'd worship and praise you, you alone, to point to you, Jesus, the one who is the author of life, the one who has created us, the one who has made these things, uh, who has made us in your image and call us back to a right relationship with you. Just love you. I want to pray these things in Jesus' name.